Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning. This is Ken Murray and welcome to The Michael Reed Show. Coming up, the outgoing president of the IFA, Joe Healy, reflects on three years at the top and the state of Irish farming. Women's Aid launches its Femicide Watch for 2019, following a year in which six women have died from violence. Organisers in Navan hope to make this year's Gold Mile the best ever. We hear of their plans. Drogheda Volunteers are named ISPCC Volunteers of the Year. They'll tell us of the impact they hope to make this Christmas. And we'll be hearing what Dundalk people would like for the festive season. That's all coming up between now and 11am right here on The Michael Reed Show. But first, it's been a, a tough year for beef farmers as they maintain their quest to seek better prices from meat factories. As 2019 comes to an end, outgoing president of the Irish Farmers Association, Joe Heaney, reflects on a busy three years in the job, and he joins me on the line right now. Good morning, Joe. Morning, Ken. How are you? I'm OK, Joe. First of all, um, how would you sum up the current state of Irish farming? Well, I think, you know, as you rightly said there, beef farming has put in uh, a very difficult 2019. And not only in Ireland, but across Europe. And I suppose therein lies the problem. Um, you know, there was three parts to this year earlier on in the year. We examined the markets and the, the markets where 90% of our beef goes into that's the UK and five other countries. They were paying very similar to what was being paid here to Irish farmers. And uh, it was difficult to see any rise in the market. So we went after the 100 million. Um, we, we put um, the document together, did the analysis and lodged that submission both here at home with the Irish government and also with the European Commission um, and with Commissioner Hogan, obviously. And did the lobbying on us. People said we were mad that we wouldn't get the 100 million uh, that we had shown were in losses incurred by Irish farmers. But with a lot of hard work, we did get that 100 million and a lot of farmers are getting money from that at the moment and it's very welcome then during later on in the summer we um, again examine the markets well no we constantly examine them but again that price gap hadn't opened up the UK were only 15 cent per kilo ahead of us at the time uh, France and Spain were very similar to us Germany slightly behind us and Italy slightly in front of us so um, you know the, the, it was difficult to see where the rise was going to come from and I think that has been proven that after eight weeks of protests elsewhere, no rise can. But in the last month or two, the Borbia price index showed very clearly that a gap was being uh, was opening up and getting wider. So that's why we went blockading two weeks ago. And I suppose 
really the only positive movement that we've seen in the beef sector all year came uh, during that blockade. We saw a 10 cent per kilo rise, 5 to 10 cent per kilo rise in the beef. And um, the retailers uh, agreed that they would come to the next meeting of the task force. And looking at the year ahead, I think I'd be very confident about it from a beef point of view, from a meats point of view, because I spoke at a conference in London recently and there was a speaker there and he talked about China and he said there's a 10 million uh, meat protein, 10 million tonne of meat protein deficit in China at the moment. And that figure can vary. Other people said it was more. But just to put that into perspective, we only consume 8 million tonnes of beef in the European Union every year. So a 10 million tonne deficit of meat protein is very, very significant. And we won't supply all that. Other markets will supply some of it, but then there will be opportunities where the other markets would traditionally have gone that we can can tap into. So, And we've seen what it has done in the pig sector. It's as a result, obviously, of the African swine fever. and we've seen what it has done to the, uh, in the pig sector over the last number of months. Pigs have gone from the mid-130s per kilo up to €2 Euros per kilo. And I would hope that the rising tide would lift all boats and that uh, beef and sheep would follow suit over the coming months. OK, can, can I ask you, do, you, do you sense that any uh, progress is being made with the task force? Well, we only had one meeting so far, and I suppose it's unfair on the task force to judge it on one meeting. But what was very disappointing at that meeting was, despite all the talk about beef, and everyone knew we were going in there to talk about and discuss beef price, and Meat Industry Ireland and the factories, uh, they're the factory representatives, they came to the table with nothing. They, it was an insult to the beef task force, the attitude they came to the table with. You know, the best they could come up with was, we will... Um, bring your concerns to the people we represent. Now, if if they weren't aware of those concerns already, you know, um, I don't know where they were going. And that evening on the news, every one of you could hear them say that there were signs of green shoots. Now, those signs of green shoots that they refer to were the Borbia price index, which showed that they were much more than signs. There was a 17 cent per kilo difference between Ireland and the average EU price. And there was um, a 45 cent uh, per kilo of a difference between Ireland and the UK. So, you know, since that, the last uh, four weeks has shown that that gap has widened to close on the mid-20s between Ireland and the EU and 54 cent a kilo between Ireland and the UK. All we want is uh, for the factories to follow the market and reflect the positive movement in the six European markets that we put 90% of our beef into to reflect the positive sure. movement there into a price increase for Irish farmers. Okay, let me ask you this question. I mean, the meat producers all seem to be operating in unison, or so it would appear. Do you think there is a possible cartel in operation here? I suppose I'm not allowed to say <laughs> what, uh, publicly what I think. Uh, but, you know... I've uh, been reporting for the papers for about 15 years on beef prices and it's amazing how they can go up and down in what seems like unison from week to week and um, it's nearly always very similar movement so maybe I should leave it at that. Well let me put it to you another way do you think there just might there might be a reason for the competition authority to look into this whole area? I think what we need, Ken, is an independent regulator because I have long since lost faith in the competition's authority. Um, you know, I suppose in fairness to them, um, we were discussing stuff with them in at the Oireachtas Committee on Agriculture one evening and uh, the competition's authority were very were quite clear 
that they are only interested in the consumer and not the producer. So I we haven't seen the Competitions Authority do anything for the producer from a farming point of view. And um, that's why we have made very strong calls, Ken, for an independent uh, uh, food regulator. And I've been I've chaired a group in Europe and COPA that uh, looks at the unfair trading practices in the food chain. And, you know, uh, following on from the work of the Commissioner Hogan's Agri-Markets Task Force, um, we want to see more regulation around that. And uh, But the only way that we'll have any confidence in it is if there's an independent regulator. And very recently, we had the UK Grocery Code Adjudicator, Christine Taken, uh, speak at a meeting that IFA organised. And she has done good work in the UK as well. Now, the United Kingdom says it hopes to be fully out of the European Union by the end of next year. At the end of January, it stops having, if you like, an input into policy and regulation. But uh, Boris Johnson is indicating that he hopes to have the trade deal done by the end of December 2020. With the British, if you like, not contributing to the EU budget from 2021 onwards. There's going to be, if you like, less money to dish out under the common agricultural policy. What sort of an impact do you think that's going to have on the sector in Ireland? Well, look, anything that affects the direct payments um, has a huge impact in Ireland because the direct payments account for over 100% of the farmer's income on dry stock farms, and on sheep farms and in many cases on tillage farms. So anything that affects that. Now, we would have worked incredibly hard. We have an office in Brussels and Liam McHale is out there and he gave us a tip-off earlier on um, that Commissioner Ottinger, who was the European Commissioner with responsibility for the budget, that he was going to go around Europe on a charmed offensive, uh, preparing us for a cut in the cap. And uh, so we watched out and he came to Dublin and sure enough, he, uh, his line in the Oireachtas Committee that day was that there would be a cut in the budget. It could be up to 30% and uh, at very best, and he would do all he could to, to have a best-case scenario of a 15% cut. So the IFA met him straight after that meeting. We went to Brussels the following morning, met with Commissioner Hogan and other commissioners. And basically what we were saying to them is, I suppose, if you want to put it in a simple line, was that they were sending out a very, very wrong message to those of us and the countries that were, were remaining loyal to the EU, that because of a country that votes to leave the EU, we're going to be hit uh, financially and we're the ones that's going to lose out. So I think the work that we did helped in no small way. We also led it at COPA level. I'm vice president of COPA. And we led it at COPA level um, to make sure there wasn't a cut. Now, eventually there was a cut, but it was 5%. And we're still working to try and get that reversed. But the difference between that 5% and the best case scenario that Ottinger was talking about at 15% is worth 130, will be worth over 130 million per year to Irish farmers uh, going forward. So at least that has been saved. But our, our three priorities on Brexit from the very start was that the UK and the EU would maintain the closest possible trading relationship in the future. Secondly, that the that UK market would not be undermined by their ability to go off and do uh, trade deals with other countries, the likes of the Mercosur or South American countries. And thirdly, that the cap budget would be maintained going forward. So I think Boris Johnson, you rightly give the dates there, Ken, the, you know, the, he's saying they leave the 31st of January, which is only about five or six weeks away. And that um, 
the 31st of December 2020 could be it could be a cliff edge. Um, he's talking about uh, again, as you rightly say, that the uh, free trade agreement will be done. I I find that incredibly optimistic when you figure out that, um, or when you take account that the average length for a trade deal to be done is seven years. I don't know how uh, Boris Johnson thinks that he can have one done with the EU in in twelve months. And I read in the Farmers Guardian recently, and it's a concern for us that you know English farmers were saying that. Um, the British state institutions all along, they were being told that the British state institutions, the hospitals, the jails, etc., couldn't buy uh, all English food, uh, all, all British food, because it's part of the EU. Sure. Ha- yeah, yeah, Joe, can I just stop you there? Because we're up against the clock, and I just want to cover one okay. or two other areas. I mean, you inherited the job as president of the IFA uh, following the, uh, the departure of Pat Smith and the controversy surrounding the payments he received there was a, a blow to IFA membership. I think you lost something like over 3,000 members. Uh, what condition, if you like, is the IFA in at present? I think it's in a very healthy condition because in the, in the past three years, we've actually increased our membership numbers every year and we've uh, over the past three years. And that's from, like, there are less and less farmers every year in the country and to have increased your membership, people like a, a, a silent um, minority or a silent a silent majority, you know, they come to meetings, they do the work, and then you will have the minority that will give out and they'll be heard on that. But it's the majority you want to appease. And uh, they have seen that it's ISA is an organisation that has delivered over 600 million euros in extra money for Irish farmers over the past four years. That's okay. neither new schemes or sure. top-ups to existing schemes. So I think it's in it's in a good position and numbers... Right, Joe. Um, just just two that. more questions. Yeah, two more questions I want to get in because we're up against the clock here. Yeah. Um, there was a problem some years back about attracting young people into farming that where the family farm was passed on to a son or a daughter, they just weren't interested because they found the hours difficult and the nine-to-five uh, was more attractive um, in terms of, if you like, a more comfortable lifestyle. Where are you at in terms of getting more and more young people into farming? You've rightly said it is a problem, but, you know, it's a problem right across the EU. Uh, we're very, very similar in our figures there with 6% under 35, over half the farmers over 55 years of age. There are long hours and unfortunately the income is a problem, um, you know, and very often and that's where the retailers and the processors come in. And I would hope that the work that's done on the unfair trading practices will, this is all about trying to get a fairer share of the consumer euro back to the farmer. And I think food hasn't kept pace with inflation. Food prices in Ireland in 2018 were cheaper than they were in 2001. We've gone from 30% of the average household income being spent on food back in the late 70s to 8.7% of the average household income being spent on food uh, at the current time. And therein lies a big part of the problem. Okay, Joe, I'm going to have to leave there. There was a few more questions I wanted to squeeze in, but the the clock is up against us. But just finally, uh, are you looking forward to getting your life back in order after having spent the last three years up and down to every other meeting around the country and over and back to Brussels? Well, it was actually four years, (laughs) Ken, so... um, but no, look, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I've enjoyed working with the farmers all over the country and representing them. Um, you know, and you know, we don't set prices around Europe. We're a lobby organisation. We we don't buy beef or buy milk. But I think you know, when you look at the six hundred million euros that we've delivered for Irish farmers in four years, 
against a difficult climate. Um, you know, it, it's not a bad delivery for Irish farmers. Okay. Okay, Joe, we're going to have to leave it there. That's outgoing president of the Irish Farmers Association, Joe Healy, who's been succeeded by Tim Cullinan, who takes over very shortly. And uh, best wishes, Joe, in the world of farming uh, from here on in. Okay, more items coming up a little bit later on. But before all that, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. If you do want to get in touch, our text number is 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Six women have died in violent incidents in Ireland in 2019, the most recent being Nadine Lott, who was allegedly assaulted at her home in Arklow, County Wicklow, last weekend and died three days later. Five of the six women who died this year were killed in their own home. Figures from Women's Aid say that since 1996, 87% of women killed in violent incidents are likely to be killed by a man known to them. These are pretty distressing figures, and to discuss them, I'm joined on the line right now by Sarah Benson, who is the CEO of Women's Aid. First of all, Sarah, how bad are things out there? Good morning, Ken. Good morning to your listeners. Um, I think those figures... um speak volumes and, and I suppose I, I would also just want to share my condolences and, and those of all of us in Women's Aid with the families of the women who've lost their lives and particularly the children um, who have uh, you know been left behind at such a, a, a difficult time of the year. Um, so domestic violence um, as uh, uh, as a crime is is something that uh, even the Gardaí would now uh, uh, agree is one of the most prolific forms of violence uh, perpetrated in this country. We have one in four women uh, will experience uh, abuse at the hands of the current or former partner because unfortunately we know from our frontline services that uh, abuse does not necessarily end uh, when a relationship ends and indeed it can sometimes be the most dangerous time for a woman um, and indeed her children if they're trying to leave a relationship. So it is really serious. Um, It is something that uh, I hope the conversation has opened up a bit about because uh, quite wrongly there there is still stigma attached to the victims of this particular crime and that can inhibit them from uh, disclosing what's happening from seeking help and it also means that the focus is not where it ought to be which is on the, the behaviour of those who perpetrate violence. Is there any evidence to suggest that where women have died at the hands of a perpetrator that these were if you like, one-off incidents that got out of hand or that there was, a, you know, a, a trend of consistent violence in the home and the final one was one too many? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked because there's a common misperception. Sometimes it's, it's, it can be perpetrated by uh, by media reporting and, and particular use of language, uh, you know, language like, you know, that somebody snapped uh, or, you know, that this was a, a tragic incident that was kind of a bolt from the blue, whereas actually uh, something we don't have in this country, but something we have been calling for along with many, many other uh, domestic abuse organisations and indeed families, surviving families, is um, studies called domestic homicide reviews. And these have been uh, undertaken over a number of years in a few different jurisdictions now. And what that does is it... Uh, studies uh, the circumstances when there has been a, a domestic homicide 
uh, it engages all the different stakeholders, uh, whether there were services involved, where police had ever been aware of the, the, the family of, of, uh, of the, the, the victim or the perpetrator. And it also includes family and community and colleagues in some cases. And what it does is it tries to answer that question, is to paint that picture and say, what happened? Why did it happen? And also, crucially, was there anything that could have been done differently by anybody um, to prevent this happening. And what those studies have found invariably is that where you have uh, an intimate partner uh, or a former intimate partner uh, murdering um, uh, their, their, um, their, their ex or their partner, um, is that no, it is not the case that if somebody just snaps. There is invariably uh, warning signs. Um, and we also now have a very clear correlation with uh, a form of abuse which has now been recognised in law in this country, which is coercive control, where there may not actually have been physical violence at all until the point of escalating to murder, but there will have been very uh, controlling behaviour, monitoring, um, isolating of the of the, the woman until the point where you know her whole life is controlled by this individual. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it is not uncommon, not always the case, but not uncommon that something will have happened. Uh, perhaps uh, the, the, the perpetrator will have realised perhaps that she's going to try to leave. Maybe she has tried to leave or something else will have happened um, and it will escalate. But it doesn't come as a bolt from the blue. Uh, if I'm right in saying, I think there's a new law on the statute books about coercive control. Um, how difficult do you think it would be for women, if you like, to uh, prosecute a former partner uh, on the basis that uh, she feels she's being, if you like, controlled in an aggressive manner? Well, coercive control is, is you're quite correct, it has been, uh, it's part of the Domestic Violence Act 2018 and that took effect uh, uh, in January of this year. It has yet to be tested in court, um, but we have seen extraordinary success in Scotland already, who actually um, enacted the, a similar crime uh, after we did. So we know it can be done. What is crucial is to um, be able to give visibility to a pattern of behaviour. And this is where it takes a slight shift um, but it's a really important one for those who are suffering domestic abuse because most criminal offences are prosecuted on the basis of a single offence. You know, somebody is mugged, um, a house is burgled. But with domestic abuse, it is always a, a cumulative uh, number of incidents, some of which taken on their own may not be criminal or may not seem, you know, so serious. But it's when the pattern of behaviour is is displayed, you know, where perhaps, uh, you know, we, we, we have um, uh, supported women where, you know, the heating is turned off when he's not in the house. There may be a padlock on the fridge where she's only given enough petrol to get where he wants her to go. Her mileage is tracked. Uh, her phone is tracked. And to the outside world, none of those things are visible. But of course, that is extremely controlling behaviour. And so uh, it is necessary for for coercive control to be prosecuted, for the criminal justice system to recognise that it is the pattern of a series of behaviours and not one single incident. But, you know, for us, we've been providing services for over 45 years. Um, what many women have said to us and continue to say to us is, you know, sometimes women will say, I wish he would just hit me because then it would be easier to, uh, to, to prove. But it is the emotional abuse, the psychological abuse, the controlling behaviour, which actually creates a jail of their own home uh, and indeed their own, their own lives. Um, so it is a really serious... And sure. Just, just a couple of more questions, Sarah, because uh, I want to move on to the next item. But um, is alcohol a significant factor where, if you like, violence occurs? I would want to say that alcohol doesn't cause 
uh, abuse. Uh, I think that's really important to say, but I think it is also equally important to recognise that alcohol uh, other substances can act as disinhibitors and so where there is abusive behaviour um, alcohol being in the mix absolutely can really exacerbate it can escalate and levels of abuse and violence can, can escalate it, it, you know sometimes people who are abusive feel that it gives them permission because they might try and explain it away afterwards but our experience is that you know, where somebody is particularly abusive when drinking, they are invariably also abusive, perhaps at a lower level when they are not. And of course, we also know that there are plenty of, of people who behave abusively who don't drink at all. So sure. I think it's at this time of the year, there is a lot of focus on alcohol. Christmas can be a particularly difficult time. Um, it can be a particularly um, stressful and high risk time for, for that reason. And but also for the other reasons that, you know, families are thrown together. People are on holidays, children are off school, everybody's in the house together. Opportunities to get respite um, become more limited. Sure, and sure. So, for your listeners, I would also want to mention we do have um, uh, the free phone helpline, which is one eight hundred three four one nine hundred, and that's open twenty four seven right through Christmas Day. And and for your listeners, there there is also support services uh, run uh, in the local area. There is a refuge in Drogheda, there is a, dr- a refuge in Dundalk, and our helpline can find both to them, or, or your quarters can find information about them also. Yeah, on, just on just another question, Sarah, b- before um, w- we close this. Um, we, we've done these type of interviews before, and a, a trend seems to emerge that where women are in violent relationships, that they appear to be too proud, if you like, to go and get help. They feel that they can handle this on their own. And for some, of course, the failure to get help can cost them their lives. What would you say to women listening to this programme who are actually in an abusive relationship? Okay, if I may, I might reframe a little what you said there. And our experience is that, yes, women can struggle to to reach out, not for pride, but usually for fear. And, And it is fear fear that if their partner finds out that they're trying to seek help, that the abuse will escalate. Fear of being judged, and I think it is. it comes back to what I said earlier, is that somebody who's in an abusive situation, it is not their fault. It is the fault of the person who is hurting them and controlling them. And so, um, uh, but we know, unfortunately, that that stigma persists. And it's really important that more and more, if we have friends, loved ones, colleagues, anyone we're worried about, that we continue to repeat that message that it is not their fault, that asking for help or support, there is no, um, there is no shame in that. Everybody, uh, you know, in our lives for different reasons will need help with different things and that's perfectly okay. And so if anyone is in doubt, even if anyone has a kind of gut feeling that something doesn't feel right, you know, contact our helpline, contact your local support service, uh, get the help that you need and that you deserve. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That's uh, Sarah Benson. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us this morning. And uh, as Sarah said, uh, the uh, Women's Aid Helpline is open right across uh, the Christmas period. The number is 1-800-341-900. 1-800-341-900. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. And Murray on LMFM. If you do want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. Well, now, as, uh, as you probably know, on Christmas morning, lots of people around the country go for a walk or a run. And there are a number of goal runs happening in the Loud Meath area this particular Christmas morning. And uh, to find out more about what's happening in Navan, I'm joined on the line now by Gary Pryor, who's involved with Claremont Athletic Club. Uh, good morning, Gary. Um, pardon the pun, but how long is the goal run in Meath running? The one in Meath is, is running about six years. Uh, so I 
personally I'm not from Navan originally I'm from Rings End in Dublin originally but I was a bit of participant in Dublin for all probably going back over 12 years and I would have taken part in goal miles in Damon Rings End or out in Belfield in UCD when it was there so when I moved down to Navan about six years ago I found out that there was no mile there and it become a kind of family family tradition at that stage at Christmas morning we got up and we did our, our goal mile and went back for dinner then after it so I decided that I'd start running it there and the people in Claremont Stadium were good enough to let us, let us run it there so we've had it there now the last the last six years and we do in Claremont Stadium now from 10am till half 11 uh, every Christmas morning and touch wood now it's been a great success and at this stage, I can say I have a few regulars and stuff as well, Ken, so it's, it's worked out well. And what sort of numbers are you getting uh, in the last number of years in terms of participation? We're getting a lot of families uh, now at the minute and stuff, so kind of over, we run it for an hour and a half, as I said, from 10 till 11.30, so there's 12 locations through Loud and Mead, which can all be found on the Goal website. Um, so basically, it's a case of whoever wants to turn up uh, between those times so the way the way the goal mile runs or works is you can turn up between 10 and half 11 I'll take Navin as the example uh, it's four laps of the running track there that you have to do but you can donate on the day you can actually register register online as well now this year uh, but you can donate as much as you want whether it be a euro or 50 euro or anything in between uh, and it's just four laps of the track which you can walk you can jog you can run Whatever way, whatever way suits yourself, it's just participating on the day and then giving towards goal. What sort of money has goal in Navan raised with these runs? Uh, we kind of average probably six to seven hundred uh, for the hour and a half on a Christmas morning, so um, we'd be quite happy happy with that. We've done a good bit of promotion now this year again, and we're trying to get a few of the local schools and that involved, and it's just to get numbers up. Uh, but really, it's it's more the enjoyment of the day. It's it's getting it out there, and that six or seven hundred goes towards goes towards goal. I would have a, a couple of friends that are are what are known as goalies uh, in goal, or volunteers that basically work for goal. Uh, and goal works in kind of thirteen countries throughout the world, like Haiti and Ethiopia, Sudan, uh, mainly toward pro- poverty. Uh, is what they look at and I think there's a bit of a push the last couple of years in regards to to street kids and and looking after trying to see if they can they can do good work there on that side of things Uh, As you know there's been a number of scandals in various charities uh, over the last number of years and people have sort of held back from giving uh, to charities has Goal in any way been if you like hit by this? Goal, in that respect, I think there has been change in management and stuff in Goal. As I said, no, I'm the volunteer for Goal, so uh, I'm not involved in the management of that office. But uh, no, on that side of things, you can go on to the Goal website. Uh, you can see full, there's full disclosure there if anyone has any concerns in regards to where funds are. It's registered charity. Uh, all, all, Everything is very transparent there in regards to accounts and everything else on that side of things. So... Uh, no, goal and that side, I think people can take confidence that that the money that they're given on the day will end up with the people that need it. I believe some of the runs are actually happening on St. Stephen's Day instead of Christmas Day. Can you tell us where and when? I don't have the full list, Ken, but what the people can do is if they go on to www.goalglobal.org, there's a full list of uh, locations there. So there's 12 between Loud and Mead. 
and they will vary in time. So some will be on Christmas Day, some will be on Stephen's Day, as you said, and they will vary on times, though. So the best thing to do is to, to log on to the website there, or if they actually go on to Facebook, uh, usually the local Gold Mile will have a Facebook page as well that they'll be able to find times on. And uh, in terms of where the money goes, I mean, there would be people who have heard of gold but uh, don't know exactly how they operate. Where does actually money raised for gold actually go? Yeah, so gold primarily looks after poverty in the third world or tries to help with poverty in the third world. So there's about 2,500 uh, international staff with gold um, involved in different different work throughout those countries. Uh, so as I mentioned before, kind of Haiti, Ethiopia, Sudan, Iraq, uh, those countries where basically poverty and especially child poverty um, it would be the main thing that Gold would look at. So they're looking to take children in off in off streets if that's where, where children unfortunately are, or basically just to, to give people a standard living in regards to food, food and shelter and warmth. And are you up to speed as to what's happening with Gold in Louth? In Loud, uh, the locations-wise, is it, Ken? Exactly, yeah. Uh, and locations-wise, as I said, I haven't got the full list here uh, on it, but it will. it is on the Goal website. So if anyone wants is interested in anything in regards to Loud or Mead, uh, it's there on the Goal website, and you will find locations very closely. As far as I know, I think there's four Goal miles across Loud, uh, so that should everyone should, shouldn't be too far away from one of them. And in terms of organisation, I mean, are you getting any feedback at this stage as to how many will show up on Christmas Day? No, it's a little bit, as I said, registration-wise, this is the first year Goal has done registration, so I think I'm due to get a list from Goal hopefully in the next day or so in regards to how many people have registered online. But realistically, on my own Goal Mile, we usually have between about 100 and 150 people there on Christmas morning. Okay, so if anybody wants to get in touch, then they check out the goldmile.org. That's where all the details are. Goldmile.org, or they will find it. They'll probably find our local Goldmile on Facebook as well, and there's usually contacts there for the organiser of the local Goldmile. All right, well, the best of luck with that. That's uh, Gary Pryor there of the Navin Goal organisation talking us about the, uh, to, to us there about the run on Christmas Day morning. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. If you do want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. Now, alleged Islamic State member Lisa Smith from Dundalk will today be reunited with her two-year-old daughter as she was released from prison yesterday on bail. A judge said she could walk free for Christmas under a number of strict conditions, including a ban on any use of the internet and social media. Reporter Tom Chute was in court and he joins me on the line now. Tom, talk us through what was said in court yesterday. Good morning, Ken. Well, this was a renewed bail application. You'll recall that after Lisa Smith left Turkey uh, at the end of last month, uh, she came back to Ireland. She was detained for questioning for about three days by Gardaí in Dublin, and then she was uh, brought before Dublin District Court and to a, a very lengthy bail hearing there. She was denied bail and remanded in custody. Now, any decision of the, high, uh, of the District Court in relation to bail can be appealed to the High Court, and uh, with that in mind, she brought an application before Mr Justice Robert, uh, Robert Eager at the High Court in Cloverhill in Dublin yesterday. Now, objections were laid out by Gardaí from the Special Detective Unit, a sergeant uh, from from that section um, gave evidence, objecting to bail strenuously, citing the seriousness of the case, 
and uh, fears that she would be, regarded as somewhat of a flight risk, that, which means that she wouldn't face trial, that she, she could leave the country uh, and not face her, her, her trial. Now, this, the application was met uh, by an application for bail um, by her legal team, and they tried to convince the court that she, she wasn't a flight risk. And a lot of the evidence uh, was subject to reporting restrictions, so we can't discuss it. However, uh, she did give evidence. Now, she was visibly upset at times breaking down. She pleaded uh, for a chance to be able to, to, to get out on bail and spend time with her child, who has been cared for by members of her family since she went into custody. Um, her her barrister was a senior counsel who he he said that he 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 asked the court to take into consideration that she has a child here. He said that was her immediate concern, and he described that as a very strong anchor. Um, and uh, in his ruling, the judge kind of looked at case law, and and uh, you know the the. The general theory is that most people have a presumption, uh, uh, not just a presumption of innocence pre-trial, but they have a presumption of the right to bail, uh, except in certain cases. And he did not think it was necessary to deny bail in this case. And he agreed to grant bail to her. However, as you said there, he did attach a number of strict conditions. He also required a lodgement of... um, 500 euros uh, from her and also a thousand euros out of 5,000 euro bail uh, from an independent surety. That's another person who would act as a bail person. And was anything else said in court? Well, there was nothing else said. We know that she has to come back to the district court in in. Um, in, in January, a, a book of evidence has to be prepared. But the judge did spell it out to her that how how serious these bail terms were. He he's told her, as you said there, she could not be allowed to use the internet or any social media. She has to provide Gardaí with a mobile phone number to be contactable at all times, and she must do that within uh, within forty eight hours of her release. And um, he also warned her that, say for example, if Gardaí tried to ring her and she doesn't answer, that would be regarded as a breach of bail. Uh, and he, at another stage in the case, he warned her that a breach of bail means you return to custody and would more than likely remain there for your tr- pending your trial. There were other bail terms set down, like um, she had to obey a curfew and she has to sign on at a guard station twice daily. Uh, and, you know, she was generously warned that she can't apply for any new travel documentation because she has, we were told, lost her passport. And uh, once that was all set out, uh, the bail terms were set. She didn't show how much reaction to to uh, the decision. She didn't comment or say anything. She at that stage she had returned back behind the glass barrier in the defendant's bench, um, as the judge made up his mind. Uh, now the, the objections to bail had been based on the seriousness of the offence. She is accused of an, uh, being a, a member of ISIS in 2015. After she left Ireland, uh, we know that she she had converted to Islam and she had moved abroad. And it's during this period uh, the allegation centres on uh, what uh, is suspected activities may have be, she may have been involved in, uh, primarily membership of the illegal organisation known as ISIS, which also has a number of other names like ISIL uh, and uh, Daesh uh, and the Islamic State in Iraq and Sham. Uh, but and that offence is under. It's the Terrorist Offences Act 2005, and we, we know it can carry a sentence of up to eight years anyway. Finally, Tom, uh, you mentioned there that she wept a couple of times. Overall, how did she appear? Well, she, she, um, she, she only wept uh, and seemed to, be get, uh, seemed to get, get to her when she was in, in evidence, in the box, uh, addressing the issue of bail and the fears raised by Gardaí. 
However, apart from that, she didn't really show any emotion. She listened. She looked at the judge and seemed to be listening carefully. She was wearing a black hijab, but her face was visible, and she had a, a, a grey overcoat on, and she seemed to be paying uh, attention to everything that was going on and in communication with her legal team as well. Um, but uh, she didn't uh, show any emotion uh, at the end of the hearing when the decision was made. Not, none that I could see anyway. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Tom Chute, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Tom, of course, is a court correspondent based in Dublin and writes for the Daily Newspapers. Okay, you've been busy on the text machine. Marie, what are people in the Loud Mead area saying this morning? Well, Ken, before I get some of the comments, I just want to mention that I have the list of the gold miles that are taking place Yippee. in Louth and Meath. And I'll just go through them because I know a lot of people on Christmas Day sure. or St Stephen's Day, they may have time in their hand and it would be a nice family sure, thing absolutely. to do. So in Louth on Christmas Day, it's starting Dunlear AC track at 10am. DKIT in Dundalk at 10am. On St Stephen's Day then allowed St Feckin's GAA grounds in Bewley in Termin Feckin starting at 11am, sorry, 11am. And at Bush Athletic Track, home of Glenmore AC at 11am also. And then to me on Christmas Day, at Boy outside Darnley Lodge Hotel at 10.15am. Kiltail GAA Club at 11am. Claremont, as you mentioned, Athletic Stadium 10am, Royal Canal at Longwood, 10am, Rathcore, starting at the crossroads near Boggins Pub, Enfield at 12, Bettystown at 11 and Gail Column Kills, GAA Ground in Kells at 11am. And then on St Stephen's Day, then Drumcondrath, GFC Grounds at 11am. So loads there, 11am there. So loads of options for people if they want to go out and enjoy some fresh air on Christmas Day and support such a worthy cause. Sure. And as I said, more details on goalmile.org. So, Marie, what are people saying this morning? Well, people have been in touch in relation to your interview with Joe Healy. Uh, John called in from Dundalk to say that... uh, he reckons the farmers are going to have an even tougher time ahead with Brexit, that there is a lot of concern for farmers. It's yeah. a very worrying time. And he thinks that people should be more sympathetic towards the farmer. Well, the cap money is going to be uh, uh, basic. I won't say dry up, but it'll decrease because it, with the British not paying into the EU budget, there's going to be less money in the kitty to distribute to all the farmers around Europe. So Irish farmers are going to get less under cap. Damien says that he feels that the power of the IFA has been somewhat uh, diminished over the past year because of the the various different groups that have set up and feels that the organisation should uh, regroup and represent all farmers. That there is not, he, he, he thinks, he's concerned that there's so many different bodies. Yeah, it's fragmented. That is quite, bit, yeah. It is, that is quite confusing as well. Yeah. And that he feels that farmers need, uh, there's unity in numbers and need to work together on that. Just to another um, issue, if I can, Ken, we had um, an email in from a listener out the Leytown way during the week. Just really annoyed, outrageous is the word the listener used, that outside the new Aldi store, which is just about to open in Leytown, 
the council are carrying out roadworks and there are tailbacks causing up to 20 minutes delay going on Delaytown Bridge back to Julianstown and vice versa. Just what commuters need with the added Christmas traffic. So I got in touch with me, the county council, on foot of this complaint just to see exactly what was going on and if there, if there was anything comforting that sure. I could offer. So the word from me, the county council, is that the resurfacing works are ongoing on the R150. These works, by their very nature, unfortunately, cause some traffic disruption and traffic congestion. The resurfacing works are scheduled, though, to be completed uh, they were scheduled to be completed um, today. Thir- what day is today? Friday. So Friday. yesterday. Yes, that's the one Christmas. You can lose I know, track of the I days. Honest, I know. Honest God, yesterday. I, I'm thinking it has to be Friday because we're, we're out celebrating Christmas tonight. Uh, Thursday, the 19th of December. And the road markings are scheduled to be completed today, which is Friday, the 20th of December. And with regard to the Aldi development, on board Panola upheld the decision by Mead County Council to grant permission for the Aldi store in Laytown. Condition 9 of the APBP decision required the applicant to agree details of the bus bay to the front of Aldi and the agreed bus stop layout and bus shelter works have been completed. So that's just an update on that yeah. situation. In the meantime, Ken, I was in Dundalk during the week and I was asking the people of Dundalk, if you had one wish for Ireland this Christmas, what would it be? And here's what they had to say. I would just like to see more stability and the government maybe being more aware of the homeless. There are a lot of homeless people all over the country and I would love to see the government being a lot more aware of the homeless people. We're very blessed. We all have homes. No homeless. All all people in homes, warm and plenty to eat and well looked after. Does it bother you thinking that there'll be people without a home? Yeah, very much so. Something to my own heart. I have a nephew that suffers very bad schizophrenia, so he's not on, on the streets, but he there's a lot of people his age on the street. He went missing and we lost him in Dublin and he was homeless. So it's a big thing to our family. We just want everybody fed and watered. I think if everyone could be a bit more contented with things rather than being anxious about things they haven't got just to be more contented with the things they have got so that might make life a bit easier for everybody Do you think we worry about things we shouldn't? I, I, I think we we're always looking at the other things we want rather than saying I've got this and you know. And enjoying what we have Yeah, absolutely, absolutely Well it'd be to get, try and get rid of a lot of the homeless off the streets, you know to, to get places for them to stay some very dear to me now is those you know, the homeless, that would be my wish for Christmas. To get rid of the homeless, to help all people get houses and just a roof over their heads. I think that has to be sorted. That's just the worst thing you can see at this time of year. Any time of year, but especially this time of year. It's hard to see. It's hard to look at all this happening around you when there could be so much good in the world. Just peace for the whole country with Brexit. That's basically all. Are you worried about what might happen with Brexit? Oh yes, indeed, yes. Be fearful for Dundalk. The economy is going to take a hit, you know. So it's but the last thing you want is a return to any troubles. Oh, it's the last, very last thing. Did everything would get a bit better for the people and everyone get on a lot better? People would be happy. People would be a lot happier. Yes, yeah, and be able to buy houses and do things like that because it's very expensive place, you know. That all homeless people would have a home to go to. Is that something that bothers you? It does, yes, it does. And you feel the government needs to really get your grips with it? Absolutely. Peace and happiness. Simple as that.
that? Simple as that, yes. Peace, especially political peace. United Ireland. Really? Yeah. Do you think a border poll should happen? I think it should do, yeah. yeah. I don't, don't think it's too far off the way things are going. So hopefully, hopefully I'll see it in my lifetime. There you go. The views of people on the streets of Dundalk this week talking uh, to Marie. Yes. Ho- homelessness being yes. the, the one issue that just kept Absolutely. jumping out of everybody. It was a bit of a mixed bag, but definitely everybody just it seems to be dominating. A, a huge amount of concern across all types of people worried about those who can't get on the property ladder and then also people that have just haven't got a home this Christmas so hopefully it might be something that will dominate uh, the government or if there's a new government next year. And you did ask me in the office earlier on what, what, and I said homeless having not heard the piece. That's right, I so did say I, to you what would your wish yeah, for Ireland be yeah, just yeah. as a matter of interest, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a thing that's uh, bothering a lot of people so uh, hopefully if the politicians are listening in this is something that's uh, irking the, the, the people of Ireland and who knows could be significant when the general election comes around next year. I think definitely can. Well, look, we'll leave it on that for the moment. Yeah, we'll leave it on that. And as I said, keep those texts coming. Our text number is 086-1800-658. We'll take a break. Well, as you've heard over and over during the past two weeks, the FAI has debts which now, it appears, have accumulated to €62 million. These debts are clearly unsustainable and questions are now being asked about the future of the FAI itself and indeed the implications of those debts for senior and junior clubs around the country. Dundalk FC is indeed one of the most successful clubs in the history of the League of Ireland, having won the league 14 times, the FAI Cup 11 times and they've played 32 games in European competitions. The current mess in the FAI, of course, has the potential to impact negatively on a club like Dundalk. Earlier this week, Shane Ross, the Minister for Sports, said that if the FAI goes, then the League of Ireland goes. So what would this mean for clubs like Dundalk? I'm joined on the line now by Martin Connolly of Dundalk FC. Uh, That very point, Martin, um, if the FAI was to go, where do you think the League of Ireland would stand? Well, first of all, Ken, um, I, I I don't see that scenario happening. Um, I think it's time for a lot of people to sort of calm down and take stock. The, the League of Ireland was uh, an independent body until it merged with the FBI until 2006. And um, I believe that in any situation uh, where that involves the FBI, the, the League of Ireland... Uh, has options and 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 um, can look at all 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 options open to it. Well, uh, what are those options? Well, you know, we can we can look at things going forward. I don't think it's in any interest for the FEI to collapse, which which must be said first of all. So, I, so um, I think a, a lot of things would have to happen for that scenario to happen. I don't think anybody wants the FEI to collapse. Once see no international team, no under twenty one team, no underage internationals, and the League of Ireland, the League of Ireland is only a small arm of the FEI. I don't believe it's in UEFA's interest for the FAI to class based on <coughs> games in Euro 2020 being played here next year. I do believe then if that happens, you know, we are in discussions with Kieran Lucid about an All-Ireland League. We also have the options of, of going it alone and, and going as an independent body, which, which um, you know, we have been in discussions with, with the FAI over the last 18 months or so about a hybrid model, which improves what we have at the moment, or, you know, an independent model. Well, I'll come to the issue of the League of Ireland going it alone uh, a little bit later. But how can the FAI remain, if you like, in situ when it has debts now of 62 million euro? It is, uh, in business terms, insolvent. Is it not time to abolish the FAI and start fresh with a whole new governing body? 
Well, well, I believe that is an option that could be opened, um, Ken. But I, I believe that that we need um, we need a strong body. We need to look at at, at um, sorting out the financial mess that it's in. We need to sort out the governance and transparency of that body. If, if that's not possible, then we do need to to uh, to look at setting up a, a new body. But um, as for the the, the debts, um, you know. We'll see what transpires over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, more could come out of that, and that that is a bigger worry than anything at the moment. Well, now Dundalk FC is a member of what's known as the Premier Club Alliance, and I think it's made up of ten clubs. Why only ten clubs? Why not, if you like, all the teams that play uh, in the League of Ireland Premier Division and Division One? Well, that's very simple. The, the, the Premier Club Alliance is, is, is exactly what it is in the tin. It's the 10 uh, current teams that make up the Premier Division. There is also the First Division Alliance, which makes up the, the 10 teams that uh, make up the First Division. And um, we are in regular contact with one another. And, you know, the Premier Club Alliance, as everybody in League of Ireland would, would, would know, the issues that are in the First Division are a wee bit different than issues in the Premier Club Alliance. And it's probably easier that you know we look after our issues and then come together on other certain issues, which we have done, Ken, recently since since the um, since the removal of the former CEO. Um, you know th- th- there is now the, the NLEC, which is the National League Executive Committee, which runs the league itself, and um, there's three members of the Premier Club Alliance on it, and there's two members members of the First Division Alliance on it, and and they they are now um, effectively running the league. Uh, but Division 1, uh, the clubs in Division 1 might feel that you guys are the elite uh, in, in soccer in this country and that therefore if you were all in the same club, you might have a little bit more leverage when it comes, if you like, to uh, appealing to the likes of uh, RTE and Virgin Media and indeed uh, to sponsors when it comes to, if you like, funding a new breakaway league. Would that not be the logical way to go? Well, well, you know, when it comes to breaking up leagues or that, you know, the twenty clubs do come together and, and, and have a say in it. But in any models, in any models around Europe, Ken, the Premier Divisions have, are are the main uh, thing. And this, no disrespect to First Division clubs, we've been there before, you know. But in, in, if you look at the English model, you know, TVs want to want to watch or want the rights to Manchester United and Chelsea. They don't really want Fleetwood Town or. or, or clubs and lesser divisions so so the, what happens there is the deal is, is done is more relevant to the bigger clubs and then the pie is split and that's what happens in the likes of TV deals you know Okay let, let's let's talk about Dundalk's relationship with the FAI uh, the FAI withheld 2.2 million euro from Dundalk FC for its involvement in European soccer in the 2016-2017 season I mean how difficult was it for Dundalk FC to actually get the money from the FAI that they were actually owed well, listen, Ken, anybody in League of Ireland um, football circles will tell you that it's always been difficult to get what you're owed or, or, or information from the FBI in the words of a of, of, uh, former CEO or the FBI's former CEO. Um, we've been seen as the problem child. And, um, you know, the FBI previous to now has been sort of, there's always been a culture of fear and people have been afraid to speak out and things like that. So so stuff like that was, was common ground and, and every League of Ireland club would have issues um, would have issues uh, or had issues with the FAI in the past, which which has been disappointing and which has stopped the development of our league. <clears throat> you know, I think the important thing is now is that we look forward 
and how do we develop our league and make sure that that, that we're stronger going forward and you know we're taking the PCA um, are taking steps to do that we're meeting Fergus O'Dowd um, on, on, on over the next few days which has been arranged by, by John McGahan and um, we're very grateful for that and, and um, I got in touch with, with um, Peter Fitzpatrick who has been speaking with the Minister and we're hopeful of, of having a, a meeting with him to, to sort of plan our way forward and, and see um, can we de- can we develop our league and, and make sure that it's safe going forward. OK, well, if the Minister, Shane Ross, could grant you your wish, what exactly would you like to happen? I mean, do you want a, a standalone breakaway league that's separate from the FAI or do you just simply want more money to fund the league? Well, no. Well, I think what, what the minister has to understand what what the, the League of Ireland takes to the to the table, and and you know, um, I think he, he needs to understand that that we have uh, we bring employment in. We, we must have nearly five hundred people employed in, in both leagues and on a part time and full time uh, basis. Uh, we we brought investment into the uh, into our league and into the FAI. Um, uh, the social capital that that all League of Ireland clubs brings to um, the communities in in their areas, uh, I, I don't know what figure we can put on it, but we're working on that to put a figure on that. And it's important that, <coughs> excuse me, that the, the the minister understands that, and that you know that we just don't let it go with the FAI. You know that it's important. Right, that, but but that, what, that what I'm trying to seems. yeah, but what I'm trying to find out here is that if you guys were to break away and set up your own league, what would be new and innovative about this new league that would make it, first of all, a success and make it attractive to sponsors, media, and of course fans? Well, I think that I think that, that that's one of the points, Ken. I think that if if we do look at, at at an independent league, I think the first thing is that there are many many people and sponsors interested in sponsoring uh, soccer in this country. They may not just be interested in, in sponsoring the FEI at the moment, and that's quite understandable. So we need to we need to be uh, seen as the attractive element of soccer in this country. You know, we cater for elite football. Uh, at underage from 13 right up to 19 now we are the elite element we are providing the players of the future we're, we're massive in player development and we're, we're, we're providing the, the international players of the future and, and, and that has to be worth investing in and, and you know that that's that's what we need to do we need calm heads at the moment and we need people to sit around the table and um, to realise that the League of Ireland has a vital part to play in the future of soccer in Ireland What's the feeling amongst uh, this Premier Club Alliance about the conduct of the FAI over the last number of years? Well, obviously we're disappointed. We've been we've been a major stakeholder in the FAI over you know for the last hundred years. The, F, the, the League of Ireland is in existence since, since 1921, and um, you know we hope to be there for, for many many years to come. But uh, as I said earlier, you know every League of Ireland club has a story to tell about the FAI and, and, and how we've been treated. We we see that we haven't been treated very well. Um, and I think that's evident by 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 talking to people, and um, we we want to um, we want things to be better going forward, and, and and we want to be at the the top table and the main decision making of, of any process that, that that goes forward. And is there an appetite at all for an All Ireland League? Well, there definitely is an appetite to bring the fo- the, the, the 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 whole thing forward as much as we can. Um, you know, Kieran Lucid is a very intelligent guy. At any uh, presentation that he that he makes, he's he's been very impressive. He has a, a list of really impressive people behind him. Uh, Hypercube, which is a company that he's brought in now, recently um, done a, a deal in Denmark, a TV deal for 50 million euro in Denmark that wouldn't have a huge population more than our own. So it's very. Um, all our League of Ireland clubs are interested in taking the process as far as we can to see what uh, the figures are and, and where we can go from. 
Okay, well, look, we'll uh, we'll watch with, um, as I say, a close eye and a vigilant ear as to how your meetings with Fergus O'Dowd and Minister Shane Roscoe uh, in the coming weeks, and we'll see what uh, evolves in the next month or so. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Martin Connolly from Dundalk FC. Keep those texts coming. Zero eight six one eight hundred six five eight. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, a caller was on to us uh, seeking that number again for the Women's Aid free phone helpline. It is 1-800-341-900. That's 1-800-341-900. And we're happy to repeat that again before the end of the programme. Now, you may or may not know that volunteers with Drogheda ISPCC Childline have been named Volunteers of the Year by the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Christmas can be a busy time for them. And to find out more, I'm joined on the line now by Caroline O'Sullivan. So, Caroline, what are Drogheda ISPCC volunteers doing that makes them so good at what they do? Well, they're a fantastic team. Um, We held our volunteer recognition event in November of this year. And every year we would get nominations for various volunteers that have kind of stood out, that have gone that extra mile. And from all of the nominations and from the recommendations of staff and the quality checks that we would carry out on an ongoing basis throughout the year, Drogheda came out on top. A fantastic group of people who really go up and beyond every day when they actually go into the unit. So we how- have a fabulous team, great camaraderie. And I think what really stands out with this group is while we have a number of volunteers that have been with us quite a length of time in Drogheda, any time a new volunteer comes in, they basically welcome that volunteer, show them the ropes, and that new volunteer feels part of the team practically immediately. The quality of the engagements that they have with children, because we do quality check all the time, and their, their attendance rates, superb. Their willingness to go out fundraising, they get involved in outreaches to schools, these volunteers have just done an amazing job all year round, and we wanted to acknowledge it on a national level. Sure. So tell, tell us, delighted with them. Tell us a bit about the Drogheda unit. I mean, is it uh, Monday to Sunday? Is it 24 hours? Is it 9 to 5? You know, how does it work and where are you based? Okay, so we have childline units all over the country. And within Drogheda, the majority of the volunteer shifts in Drogheda are between 6 and 10 in the evening. But we are and we do want to extend the hours in Drogheda. So we're actually going to be doing a huge recruitment drive from now um, right up till the beginning of January for volunteers who are free from 10 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. So we're going to be opening new shifts in Drogheda. So that's why we're looking for new volunteers to actually come on board with us. Um, We really look at what availability volunteers have. The service is 24-hour. We don't have volunteers covering the nighttime shifts. We find a lot of our volunteers have their own jobs to go to the following morning, so they can't do nights. But right up until 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, if volunteers are free, we're willing to, to train them up, give them everything that they need in order to be a volunteer, and they get the huge support of that fantastic team in Drogheda as well. And I believe you're having, is it a number of information meetings? We are indeed. So we're having our first one now on Thursday, the 9th of January, and the next one then is Wednesday, the 15th of January. So at these meetings, we ask people who are interested at all to come into our office in Distillery House in Dyer Street, and we will go through with all of you exactly what it means to be a volunteer, the kind of commitment that's required. And the big thing we try to do is to try to take away the fear. A lot of people, when they think of Thailand, they think, God, I don't know would I ever be able to deal with that, or no, I'd be too upset listening to the children. 
But what I can say to you is that most volunteers feel that. But after the training, nothing can come up in Thailand that you won't be prepared for. Um, so we have those information evenings. They're happening at seven o'clock. So Thursday, the 9th of January and Wednesday, the 15th in our offices in Dyer Street. Sure. And Idel Myers is our local staff member there who will be going through all of the information about being a volunteer and will be the person who will train people up to become volunteers in 2020. OK, the service itself. I mean, what volume of calls do you receive weekly and monthly? Well, on Christmas Day, which is one of our busiest days of the year last year, we had 1,200 calls. Um, but generally speaking, on every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're getting 1,000 calls a day. 1,000 calls is, a day from, yeah. from Drogheda alone? No, 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 from all over the country. Oh. So when Drogheda is open, it isn't just taking calls from children in Drogheda. It takes calls from children all over the country. So we've six childline units, and those six units with all the volunteers in them would take a 1,000 calls a day. Some of those calls might last three or four minutes, but other calls could last 40, 45 minutes, depending on the contents of the call and, I suppose, how the child is doing at that time. So it's a huge, huge volume of calls. We also have a text service where volunteers actually respond to children by text and also an online chat service, which children can access by going on chiline.ie. But I think most people would be aware of the phone line which is the one eight hundred six 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 number. And can I ask you? Can yeah. I? Yeah. Can I just ask you, Karen, because uh, I just want to move on to a, another item very shortly. But um, there may be children listening to this program. There may even be parents listening to this yeah. program who might be curious. I mean, what would children ring you about? They could ring us about absolutely anything. It could be something like they had a fight with their friend in school that day, and when they got home, um, their mum or dad wasn't there or whatever, so they wanted to tell somebody because they were upset about it or the other end of the scale entirely where children are actually in danger or at risk. So we get calls from everything. Like children at Christmas time, we would get quite a lot of calls from children who are missing their grandparents who may have passed away during the year. And they don't want to kind of upset other family members by bringing it up. So Childline really is there for children to listen to whatever it is that's going on for them at that time. So it can be absolutely the smallest thing or it could be an absolutely huge worry. We always describe it to children as small worries or very big worries but they can contact us about whatever worries it is they have. And have calls, if you like, increased in the last number of years? The call volumes have stayed the same. I think the, the types of things that children are calling about change all the time. We, we have a huge amount of calls now around anxiety. But the other thing that we have seen as well is the fact that children are experiencing things earlier. So what 16-year-olds might have been calling us about six, seven years ago 12-year-olds are calling us about it now. Okay. So childhood is reducing. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But for a majority of the calls, it's the everyday issues that children are having. And okay. for parents out there, we would advise, give them the number. It's parents that are answering those calls as well. All right, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Caroline O'Sullivan there from the Drogheda branch of ISPCC, the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Now, uh, moving on, a restaurant owner in Carlingford is to open his doors on Christmas Day and provide free dinner to those in need and homeless on Christmas Day. Vikram Singh owns the Sitar restaurant in the town and joins me now. So good morning, Vikram. First of all, what has prompted you to do this? Uh, good morning, Ken Marie. Um, I just uh, thought uh, I had this in my mind from a long time, and um, I was thinking about the needy or elderly people or people who are in uh, need uh, financially, you know, not not good. So I had this idea from a long time in my mind, but I, I wasn't, you know, in good situation at that time. 
and uh, now it's been um, like a couple of years running this restaurant so i had uh, this chance to do it this year and i just did it and i got huge response from the people around nearby areas now you're offering uh, free dinner not just to homeless people but to those who are struggling uh, to pay their bills do you think you'll get many visitors to your restaurant on christmas day uh, I think so, yeah. The way I got the response and messages, I think I will get so many people in and I'll be happy with that. I, I want to bring a lot of people here and make them smile and that's all, you know, my aim at the moment. And I'm so excited about it. And uh, your staff, I presume, will have to put in a full day, I presume? Uh, the staff is my family, actually. Uh, it's my father who is uh, supporting me and my brother. He, he lives in Scotland, but he came here to help me. And uh, I have a sister as well, and I have other sister, uh, two sisters. So they are all supporting me, and they will be there as well. And myself, I'll be cooking and all, you know, so it's, it's, it's fine. And uh, what sort of reaction are you getting from locals in Carlingford about this? Uh, locals, they're encouraging me, saying, like, you're, you're really doing good and all. And they are very ha- happy about it, like, it's happening in their town. And, you know, they're saying me, I got, like, very good sharing. Uh, li- I got likes on the Facebook, uh, 1,500 likes and lots of sharings and, you know, too many messages. And calls people calling me and saying like you're really good, doing good things. So good. Now I presume with a name like Singh, and pardon me, but I presume you would be of the Sikh faith. Would that be correct? Um, no, I'm not really Sikh. It's a uh, Rajput. I'm Rajput. And how would you normally spend Christmas Day? And normally we spend the uh, same as like other people do, like you know family gathering and sit together at home and having some Indian dinner. Not the turkey and ham, but some Indian, you know, traditional Indian curries we cook and, you know, celebrate. Because we have other families in Ireland as well. Uh, my uncles and all, they come here or we go there. So uh, we all sit together, same way I used to do. So I suppose with a name like uh, Sitar, I mean, the question is, will you be offering a traditional Christmas fare, i.e. turkey and ham, or will you be offering, if you like, an Indian dish? Uh, actually, I can only offer the Indian dishes because that's what we are good at, and because we, we are not like Irish chef, so I only know the Indian cooking at the moment, and uh, so I can only offer what we, what we are best at. And, uh, like, lots of people, they eat Indian food. And uh, it's not like we're going to cook the spicy or anything. No, we're going to make it very, very mild so everybody can eat it. And there will be uh, two dishes, uh, Indian and some uh, starters as well, some naan bread as well. And then we have some dessert. Uh, We can make it uh, with the rice pudding, sweet rice pudding. So everybody can eat it. Okay, well, look, you're open one to four on Christmas Day. The food is free, and uh, I must say you're to be praised highly for this very kind gesture indeed. So the best of luck with that. That's uh, Vikram Singh, who owns the Sitar restaurant in Carlingford, who's offering 
free dinner, albeit it's Indian dinner, uh, to people who are struggling on Christmas Day uh, to pay their bills and may not get a dinner elsewhere. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now that Women's Aid National Free Phone Helpline number again is 1-800-341-900. Moving on, the Irish Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises Organisation, ISME, is exploring the development of specialist group insurance schemes. The news comes as four of Ireland's largest insurance brokers have indicated that they are withdrawing from providing cover in the hospitality sector, which is likely to see many restaurants and small coffee shops close next year. Neil MacDonald is CEO of ISME and joins me now. Uh, First of all, Neil, what exactly are you looking for? Well, what we're out uh, scoping interest among, you know, among the public and businesses in general is interest in the formation of uh, what are called captive insurers. And these are insurance companies that are formed by people effectively self-insuring. So rather than paying the money to an insurance company, what they do is they uh, hire their own broker and they pay their insurance premiums to that broker and they insure themselves. Um, And in that way, they can do two things. They can reduce the cost of insurance uh, to themselves, but they can also remove some of this volatility that you're seeing in the news this week, Ken, where certain businesses crashes and and now we hear restaurants and cafes are being told, you know, we're not going to insure you next year. I mean, that's, that's really serious stuff. So um, we're hopeful that there is going to be uh, some interest in doing this. And there are indeed some captive insurers already functioning in Ireland. So we're not actually doing anything radically new. But what we are planning to do is to make it more widespread. Right. In theory, it sounds like a good idea. But if a business pays €500 to an insurer and there's a claim for €25, the insurance company picks up the €25. Isn't the downside of all this that if you insure yourself and somebody was to make a claim and the judge says you'll have to pay Mary or Johnny €25, then the business gets hit for €25? No, it would be, when you set up a captive insurer, you actually set up an insurance company. Um, Now, of course, you do have to have sufficient liquidity in that insurance company to do exactly as you've just said, Ken. You know, if, if... if you're putting in a 500 euro premium and you get a 25,000 euro claim, uh, the likelihood is that even within that system, your insurance is going to go up. Um, and it is the case in Ireland that, uh, that, you know, life is expensive even for people who have captive insurers. Um, but what is also likely to be the case is you're you're not paying these very high margins or these profit figures that we hear uh, some uh, uh, insurance companies are enjoying. But more crucially, you're much less likely to get a letter from someone saying we are not going to insure you because you will own the insurance company yourself. How bad is the situation out there? I mean, I, I made the point there that uh, Adrian Cummins of the Restaurants Association of Ireland was saying that uh, with the number of uh, brokers walking away from the hospitality sector, the likelihood is that a number of restaurants and coffee shop type businesses are going to close next year. So how bad is it for your sector? It's it, it's a sectoral question you're asking me, Ken. So what we see is uh, that while there 
Well, well, oddly enough, the central bank figures even seem to give the lie this week to the notion that motor insurance has come down, you know. Um, there has been a data deficit there since 2015 when the central bank stopped publishing its blue book, which gave us all kind of good high-level data of what was going on in the in the insurance business. There does appear to be real pressure points around certain business sectors. So, uh, in other words, I can't give you a general answer to the question you've given me, but the, specifically the sectors that the underwriters appear to be afraid to cover now are anything to do with children. So that's child care or child play, creches, um, playgrounds, activity centres and, and things like that. Uh, for adults, uh, also things that involve activities, so adventurous activities that sure. involve zip lining, bicycles, but anything to do with bicycles, interestingly, is very hard yeah. to cover. And fin- then, f- finally, Neil, because I'm going to have to stop you there. Just one final question. Have ISME members looked at securing insurance from companies outside the Republic of Ireland? Uh, yes. They, yes, they have, and, and we know that a number of them are uh, insured uh, ex-London for quite a lot of risks. But as, as you know, Brexit um, is, is presenting its own difficulties there, and whether those services will actually passport um, post-Brexit is, is a significant question. Lloyd is a big underwriter in Ireland still. So yes, people are very aggressively looking for solutions, Ken. Okay, well, we wish you well with that. That's uh, Neil MacDonald there, the CEO of the Irish Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises known as ISME. Now, just before we close, good news reaching us this morning, uh, and it is that Owen Ward's crucial spinal surgery, which was cancelled on Monday due to a shortage of nurses, has gone ahead. Joining us on the line now from Temple Street Hospital in Dublin is his mum, Katrina. Um, Katrina, I believe you were on with Michael during the week, and things were not looking so good. So tell us what's happened in the meantime time. Good morning and um, yeah um, well we've good news now Owen has gone down to surgery but, um, probably around 45 minutes ago uh, so yeah the surgery's happened so we're just delighted now to see that it's gone ahead today. And what time did the surgery happen? Uh, he went down probably around quarter to 11 I think I actually no I'm not or, or quarter to 10 sorry I'm a bit confused with times. Um, but he's gone down probably around 45 minutes, maybe an hour now at this stage. Um, so the surgery will be, it is a long surgery. It's a minimum six hours surgery. So it will be a long day um, waiting around to see how things go. How are you feeling? Um, I'm actually okay. I'm a little bit surprised. I think I'm probably more relieved than anything. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm happy that you know, today has finally come. It will probably, the reality of it will probably hit me next week. But at the moment, I'm relieved and feeling quite happy that he's in surgery. So, yeah, we're, you know, and we're delighted, like the public support. I think that's kind of kept us going this week without a shadow of a doubt. The public support has just been unbelievable. And everyone's well wishes and, you know, kind words and, you know, candle lights or lighting candles for own and prayers um just it's unbelievable the people have just been fantastic so um that's definitely helped to make this week a little bit easier and when did you get the news that this operation could go ahead we got it yesterday um so we got a call probably around half 11 yesterday morning from the spinal nurse to say that it was 
scheduled to go uh, to happen today, but we were still waiting on a bed confirmation and, you know, the usual. But um, anyway, we didn't get any more calls. We were told just to go in for half seven this morning, uh, which we did. So uh, thankfully there was a bed and uh, he was taken down to surgery probably around an hour ago now. So. Okay, well, that's a good news story, not only to end the programme, but indeed to end this week. So uh, we wish one and all there in the Ward family from Clonard in County Meath with that. And uh, best wishes to Owen, who's receiving that operation this morning. And that just about wraps it up for this morning. Chris Murray was on sound. Marie Cairns put the programme together. I'm Ken Murray. I'll speak to you again next Monday, just after the 9am news. And Sinead Brazel is next. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.